Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 through to 16 this morning. Make way for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I have great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we come, came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that God, that before God you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has refreshed by you all. I had I have boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Thank you, Michael. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to, uh, to be with you this morning and uh, add my, uh, my warm welcome. We had a bit of a warm theme going on this morning. Um, it was actually 19.4 degrees in here, um, according to this earlier on, so um, and I, it wasn't directly in front of the heaters, but uh, so it is. So those heaters are actually quite effective, which is great. Well, uh, we're continuing our series through 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. Uh, thank you, Michael, for reading that for us. But I want to start with a verse from the Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I wonder, would you rather have a friend, someone you know and trust, take to you with a proverbial knife, wound you in that way? Uh, would you rather that than receive the flattery and praise of someone who is, in fact, your enemy? 
Uh, it's a tough one, especially for someone like me who just loves words of affirmation, you know, flattery, praise, love it, bring it on. Um, but this, this proverb warns us that there's someone who multiplies kisses, who lavishes flattery and praise, may actually be an enemy. And so there's a warning here. But the proverb also says that some, sometimes a friend needs to cause us wounds out of love for us. They, they need to speak the hard truth, but a loving truth, and it can hurt. It can hurt, but it can be trusted because they're a friend. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Well, I wonder what you think of that. Do you agree with that? I mean, in life, does it, does it work? Do we prefer a wound from the friend? I don't know. I mean, I think we like to be liked, actually, and what people think of us, it matters to us a lot, um, more, more to some of us than others. But all of us, I think, at least on the surface of things, we prefer kisses to wounds. We like to be liked. And rebuking or correcting, wounding, is actually difficult. I don't know, if you, have you had to rebuke someone recently or have you been rebuked by someone recently? I don't mean has someone had a go at you. I'm not sort of talking about that kind of wounding, um, you know, someone just venting at you out, out of anger. I'm talking about the rebuking or the correcting of someone out of genuine love and a desire to do, to do good. It's, it's a difficult business and I think uh, sometimes we can shy away from it because of fear, fear of harming the relationship maybe fear of being perceived as, as judgmental or hypocritical or maybe even fear of being judgmental and hypocritical. Or we can blunder into things uh, in an effort to correct, but really we're doing it with, with quite mixed motives. We're wounding and being wound and wounded, maybe out of love or maybe actually out of some other less pure motive. It's, it's a difficult and painful business. And we see that in this, this passage before us uh, in the Bible today, where Paul had rebuked the Corinthians. And that's what lies in the background of, of what he writes here in chapter 7. Now, it's a bit of a, a complicated uh, puzzle, piecing together the, the background uh, from different parts of, of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and from the book of Acts. Um, but we can kind of piece together what seems to be going on. Uh, it seems that there were probably actually four letters, um, and only two of them we, we still have. Uh, and there were at least two visits up until this point uh, with a planned third visit. On the first visit, Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthians. And then later came a second visit, which he describes uh, as, as the painful visit. It was a tough one. It had its, its moments. Paul wasn't pleased with, with some of the things that he found when he visited, and things really didn't go so well. Uh, we can get a picture of, of things by putting together a few pieces. So piece number one in chapter 12 and 13, he says that he's concerned about people who've been caught up in sexual sin and still haven't repented. So he says 12 verse 21, it's on the screen, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. So he's concerned that that's what he's going to encounter. Uh, piece number two, he's, he's also concerned, this is the verse before this um, in 1220, that he might encounter discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. These uh, th- tough things are going down in, in Corinth. 
Um, presumably he's concerned because, well, that's what he encountered last time on the painful visit. And then piece number three, back in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about uh, someone who has caused grief. Uh, it's, it's grief to them and to him, uh, which Paul says he, uh, ha- he has forgiven. So putting these, these pieces together, what happened on this second visit? I think a reasonable reconstruction is that, that some people in the congregation were caught up in unrepentant sexual sin, for which Paul rebukes them. In response, some people cause trouble, discord, jealousy, slander. Maybe. Who are you, Paul? Who are you to tell us what to do? And as a whole, the Corinthians, well, they, they failed to deal with the situation. And so Paul left and he wrote them the, the hard letter, which, which we, don't, we don't have. And then he sent, he sent that letter with, with Titus and that letter caused them sorrow. Uh, it, it hurt them. And he, he didn't do it lightly. In, in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So Paul had such a, a, a depth of love for the Corinthians. And at, at first he, he had some regrets about sending this letter. He was fearful that, that they, they'll respond badly. He's fearful that he's lost relationship with them, uh, that they'll be led astray by these, these unrepentant sinners and troublemakers. And Paul put it all on the line. He wrote some hard truths. He, he rebuked them. He wounded them as a friend because of their sin and their failure to deal with their sin. And that's actually something that uh, the Christians are called upon to do from time to time. Uh, now, why is that? Well, it's not because Christians are, are meant to be bossy and judgmental and dogmatic. And I mean, people can have that kind of caricature of Christians. It's because we're actually meant to be different from the world around us. It's because sin actually matters. And so we're called upon to, to be different, to deal with sin. And that's a, a corporate responsibility for each other and for the church as a whole. We see that uh, in various uh, parts of Scripture. In, um, in Galatians chapter 6, it says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So part of our, our care for each other means that when a brother or sister is caught in, in sin, we must seek to restore them. But notice there we're to do it gently and we're to, to watch ourselves that, such that our, in our restoring we don't ourselves sin. I think the, the, the sin that that may take, it could take various forms like pride, well, you know, I don't do that, or arrogance or anger or slander. So we've got, we've got to be gentle and careful, but the truth remains, we ought to do that. Likewise, uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus taught, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If, if they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
Jesus is saying sin matters and we're called to, to deal with it. We're called to be different to the world around us. So if you speak to your brother or sister, if they, they refuse to listen to you or to others or to the church, then well, they're not being different from the world around them. And so we shouldn't treat them as if they are different from the world around them. Now, that doesn't mean that we treat them like a second-class citizen or you know, we still love and care for them and pray for them as we would for anyone who is outside of Christ. But if they're refusing to follow Christ, well, then they're not different from the world around us and so we don't treat them like they are. There's another example in 1 Corinthians 5 of, of rebuking someone who is sinning defiantly and it calls upon God's people to, to be different, to be distinct from the world. Now, doing this, re- rebuking someone, correcting someone, it, it, it's, it's important but it's also hard and it's costly. It was costly to Paul. I mean, you, you get a sense of that as you read through, read through what he writes here. I wonder what your, your picture of Paul is. Do you, do you kind of think of him as a, you know, a hard-nosed man who says it how it is, who you know, calls a spade a spade and just, just you know, lets them have it, fires on, on, on all, you know, all, all barrels, tough, blunt, hardened? Maybe people can think of Paul that way, but that's, that's not the Paul of the Bible. I mean, just turn back a page um, to chapter 2, verse 12, or it's on, I think it's on the screen as well. 2, verse 12, he writes, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I, I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. That's significant. There's Paul. He's, he's, he's gone to Troas to preach the gospel. The Lord has opened a door of, of, of gospel opportunity for him. Great, let's, let's get on with things. But no, it says he had no peace of mind because he didn't find Titus. Now, it's not that he was you know, missing Titus. And it's that he was, he was anxiously sweating on the news that Titus was going to bring to him from Corinth. How had they received his hard letter? Had he hurt them? Had he damaged them? Is it all over for them and Paul and, and more importantly, for them and God? Paul feels this depth of, of love for them. He's so concerned for them. Friends, I think this is a great challenge and an encouragement uh, to us. Are we that committed to one another? Are we that close to one another? Are we sharing life with one another sufficiently that that we even know when our brother or sister is, is going off the rails? Are we anxious to find out how they're going? Yeah, as a related aside and, and application, um, I think COVID has really, has really screwed up a lot of things over the past two years. I think we'd all be united in saying that. As a church, I mean, I think we've done what we can, and I think in lots of ways we've done, we've done pretty well. We've been served by some amazing tech, uh, tech team who've, who've you know, kept... The word of God going out through through lockdowns and things like that, but I think the relational connectedness of our church has has suffered big time. Uh, not for everyone, I, I think there's a core of people who who, who I think are, are pretty well connected, coming to church most weeks and chatting to others over morning tea and meeting together in growth groups and sharing life and sitting under God's word, uh, connected, you know, to one another. But there are a lot of people in our church who are not. Relationally connected. Um, I asked Peter to, to um, give me some of the, the numbers of our attendance and, 
and, and you know, membership and stuff. You know, we print 256 name labels each Sunday morning for Harrington Park, Grace Angling Church, Harrington Park. Uh, do you know what the average attendance has been over the past month? 96 each week out of 256. I think we're, we're punching above our average this morning, actually. There's, um, the room's pretty, room's pretty full here. 96 out of 256. That means on, on average, on any given Sunday, 160 people who, as far as we know, call this church their church, are not here. That's over 60% not here. And of those 256 people, 98 of them haven't attended at all in the past month. Now, I know there's all sorts of reasons. Um, sickness. There's a lot of sickness going around. COVID, isolation, um, COVID caution. But 98 people, almost 40% of, of our church hasn't been here at all the past month. For some, it's, it's many months. Now, I don't know exactly what the solution is, um, but I do think it speaks to a serious lack of connection for many people. What can we do about it? For you guys, for those who are here, maybe um, have a look over the name labels uh, if they're still out there and, and reach out to someone who's, who's not here. Maybe send them a text, give them a call, ask them how you can pray for them, let them know that you, that you miss them. Imitate Paul. Let's imitate Paul in his concern for others. For those who are, who are not here or watching online, if you're sick, I want to say, please let us know you're sick so we can be praying for your healing and pray that you can be restored to us soon. Love to hear from you. If you're not sick, but you're staying away because of concern about getting sick, can I humbly ask if you're cutting off contact with all people or is it just with your church family? And how long are you going to avoid church? Is minimising the risk of catching a virus, is that worth sacrificing your spiritual well-being and your connectedness, your service of your church family? Uh, perhaps for some, watching church on YouTube has just become convenient. If I can channel a bit of Paul's courage and boldness, are you in the habit of giving up meetings together? If you are, it's time to read Hebrews 10:25. But can I lovingly say to all of us, let's make a priority, as far as we're able, to come and to connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not part of a growth group, become part of a growth group. I feel a little bit like Woody on, in Toy Story on moving, you know, moving Day. Everyone needs a, uh, what is it? Everyone needs a, uh, a moving buddy. If you, if you haven't got one, get one. If you're not part of a growth group, Get part of a growth group. Now, I know it's not the answer to everything, but you're much more likely to be connected to others in a real and significant and mutually beneficial way if you're part of a growth group than if you're not part of a growth group. Paul has a, has a deep, heartfelt concern for others. And I think that's a real challenge and an encouragement to us. It, is, it certainly is to me. I want to say whether we're whether we're rocking up to church here every week or once a month or not at all, what, and whatever the factors are for us, whether it's, it's COVID, whether it's fear, whether it's individualism, whether it's busyness, poor priorities, our personality, or just, or just our own selfishness, 
Whatever it is that contributes to the erosion of our connectedness and our care for one another, let's push back against it. Let's lean into one another. Let's, let's reach out to one another. Let's strive to, to have a similar love and concern and care for one another that Paul had for the Corinthians. He felt deeply for them. So back to our passage, what did he do? Well, he reached Troas and left what he was doing. He, he walked away from an open door of gospel preaching because he needed to know. He moved on to Macedonia and in 7 verse 5 we read, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. He's fearfully concerned, which actually makes sense when you consider what's going on. Out of his love for the Corinthians, he'd rebuked them. Rebuking someone you love is a risky thing to do. You're kind of putting yourself on the line. You're putting your relationship on the line. What will they think of me? How will they respond? The risk is they won't listen. They'll just continue in their sin and they'll break relationship with you. But if a brother or sister is caught up in sin, we need to value their relationship with God over their relationship with us. Obviously, we need to try to keep good relationship as Paul is at pains to do, and we need to be gentle, we need to be humble, patient in how we go about things. But at the end of the day, if, if our brother or sister in Christ is heading down a path of sin, we can't let fear of losing relationship with them stop us from saying something. We must value their relationship with God more than that. So Paul was fearful. He's in turmoil, wanting to know how, how they responded. He, he moves on to, to Macedonia, hoping to hear from Titus, and then we read there in 7 verse 6, he says, But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Paul is greatly comforted because Titus brings the good news of their response. What was that response? Well, the letter had hurt them, verse 8. It had caused them sorrow, but it didn't stop there. See, there's two types of sorrow that are explained here. Look there in verse 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Two types of sorrow, opposite outcomes. One brings salvation and life. One brings death. Worldly sorrow leads to regret. I mean, if you're sorry you did something, you regret that you did it. But if that's it, it has, it has no lasting effect. It doesn't produce any change. I mean, to feel sorry or even to say, I'm sorry, it, it's actually not enough. I mean, I mean think of the um, story of the rich young man, who, um, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, Matthew 19. Jesus challenged him. Uh, you might say he rebuked him. He told him to, to sell all his possessions, give to the poor, and come, follow me. Get rid of the thing, the idol that you're worshipping. And it says there, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He, he experienced sorrow. He was sad. But it stopped there. It, it didn't produce change. Or take Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 3. 
It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas was filled with remorse, regret, same word. He even took some action. He returned the money, but he, he stayed in his sorrow, in his regret. He didn't turn back to Jesus. He didn't seek forgiveness and restoration. His, his worldly sorrow led him to death, literally. So worldly sorrow brings regret and produces nothing. When someone says sorry but doesn't change, well, does their sorrow actually mean anything? In contrast, godly sorrow, notice there, brings repentance that leads to salvation. Now here's a little, um, here's a little Greek lesson for those that um, like Greek, or even if you don't like Greek, here it is. Um, the word <laughs> repent means change of mind. Uh, the, the Greek word for it is metanoia. It's sort of two parts to it. Meta, from which we get you know, change, like metamorphosis, change of whatever it is, metamorphosis is. Noia, uh, from which you get the word noise, uh, uh, nous, you know, like he, he's got real nous, that guy. It's, it's your mind. So it's a change of mind. That's what repentance is. The hurt or sorrow that, that leads to a change of mind leads to repentance that leaves no regret. There's no regret there if someone, for the person who's doing the correcting or the person being corrected. The result of, of sorrow is, well, it's either regret for worldly sorrow or it's repentance, it's change, change of mind. Think about Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times while he was on trial for the high priest. And after his, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus questioned Peter three times. After the third time, it says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? But Peter's sorrow brought repentance, which led to life. So I guess the question for us, generally, broadly, is, is well, how do we respond to our sin? I mean, we all sin in, in various ways. How do we respond when, when we're made aware of our own sin? Sorrow? Well, that's, that's good and, and appropriate. But it's not enough. Being sorry is, is not enough. If it stops there, if you're just left in your sorrow and the regrets you have, it's not enough. Godly sorrow moves from, from sorrow to a change of mind, a change that then flows into change of behaviour, change of life. That's, that's repentance. Now, I don't know where your heart is for some here this morning or some watching online. That may actually be a, a new thing for you. I mean, we, we can move through life. We can, we can strive to be good and successful and maybe even be a member of a church and, but not actually know what it is to, to actually repent of your sin. And, and when, you, when you're confronted by your sin, maybe by someone else or maybe by reading God's word or maybe by the work of the, the Holy Spirit convicting you, it may hurt. It may cause sorrow. What matters most, though, is, is whether it brings change. And I'm not talking about you know, whether you've mastered all sin and become perfect or something. I, I'm saying whether it's, it's brought about the change of mind, that fundamental change of mind from living for self to living 
for Jesus. Because that's the first and, and fundamental mind shift that we all need. We all need that at some point where we, we, we hand over control to God and say, I want to be obedient to you. I want to do things your way. I want to trust Jesus and, and try, seek to follow him. I say maybe you need to take that step today. Well, actually, there's no maybe. If you haven't taken that step, you need to take that step today. But that's something that's ongoing throughout all of life for all of us. As we continue to be confronted by our sin, we need to face up to it. We need to continue to repent and to change. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And we do that knowing that it's through Jesus that we are forgiven, knowing that it's by the power of God at work in us that he is changing us, that he is growing us day by day, step by step. And that's a process that will continue throughout, throughout life in this world until Jesus returns or until we die and go to be with him in glory. Life requires courage. Courage to sometimes to rebuke a friend out of love and to do that, even when it causes us angst, even when it causes them sorrow, it takes courage. And it takes courage to, to face up to our own sin. It may hurt us. It may cause us grief. But godly courage moves us from sorrow to repentance and change. That's what we're called to do if we're God's people. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, we, we come before you mindful of your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for that. Thank you that you know us, that you love us. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Father, you call on us to be different, to, to deal with sin, to repent of it, to turn from it. And so we pray and ask that you'd help us to do that. Please give us the courage and humility to face up to our own sin and to turn from it. And please forgive us when we do sin. And Father, help us to, to love and serve one another, to, to reflect and imitate Paul's love for the, the Corinthians, his concern for them. Help us to push back against the, the things that, that may erode our fellowship Help us to know one another, to be real with one another, to love one another, and even to be able to say hard things to one another. Father, help us to do that gently, to do it carefully, to do it humbly, out of genuine love. But Father, we thank you that, you, that you've given us one another. Please help us to grow together in godliness. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.